listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 210. The election is over, sort of. We'll go through the good, the bad, and the ugly of last Tuesday and the days that followed with a variety of guests on today's show. But don't worry, we still have some other news, too. We're going to talk a bit more about Pennsylvania this episode, since it was a key state in the electoral vote that decided the winner of the presidential race. But first, I wanted to draw your attention to the potential for a big old nurses strike in and around Philadelphia. The Pennsylvania Association of Staff Nurses and Allied Professionals is an independent nurses union representing hospital workers in the state. And after months of COVID, including, of course, recent case increases, they are stretched thin. Their demands, as you have heard many times from nurses on this podcast, center on safe staffing levels, which are particularly important as the pandemic seems to be spiking again. Quote, the frontline nurses at four Philadelphia area hospitals have taken steps toward a strike to protect their patients and themselves on the cusp of a second deadly wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, said a release from the union. The nurses are seeking a commitment to safe minimum staffing levels from each of the four hospitals, end quote. The four potential hospitals are Einstein Medical Center and St. Christopher's Hospital for Children, both in Philly, and St. Mary's Medical Center in Bucks County and Mercy Fitzgerald Medical Center in Delaware County. The union told CNN that they are closer to a deal at St. Mary's and Mercy Fitzgerald, but they have given strike notice at all four. Maria Plano, a registered nurse at St. Christopher's, who is also the vice president of the hospital's union, told reporters, quote, we're in an era of healthcare being run by hedge fund groups. They don't care about where or how long they run as long as they make them profitable. They're not invested in these hospitals, end quote. As the second wave of the pandemic, or in some parts of the country, a first wave that never stopped, rises this fall and winter, we are likely to see more hospitals facing conflict as nurses and other workers are pressed, as always, to do more with less. If last spring didn't teach us a lesson about the utter insufficiency of American healthcare, I shudder to think what this winter will bring. Now that Election Day is over and the outcome, while still not quite decided, seems to be a step in the direction of a less authoritarian, slightly less reactionary next four years, let's hope it's time to take stock of what working people won and lost in this election cycle. Aside from the major national, state, and local races, which appear to have brought mixed success for Democrat challengers, voters decided directly on a number of important ballot initiatives. We'll talk more about these with Stephanie Luce in our main conversation. But here is a brief rundown of the results. Florida voters approved a $15 an hour minimum wage, finally, despite narrowly voting for Trump across the state. That means Floridians will be getting incremental raises from the current $8.56 an hour, up from $10 an hour. And that will eventually reach $15 an hour by 2026. That's six years from now, by which time we will be well past the next presidential election, and by which time the actual value of that $15 wage will have eroded considerably. But hey, better than nothing. Colorado voters said yes to paid family and medical leave, so now working parents will be able to take up to 12 weeks of paid time off for family or medical care-related reasons, which will be funded through a payroll tax. 
In Multnomah County, Oregon, voters approved a labor-backed measure to provide free, universal preschool for three- and four-year-olds in Portland through a tax on high-income households. And in Arizona, the teachers' union helped push through a measure to generate fresh revenue for public education through a tax on households earning high incomes. And we're going to talk about that in a bit with Joe Thomas of the Arizona Education Association. In Illinois, a fair tax amendment, which would have changed the flat state income tax rate to a progressive tax, failed by about a 55 to 45% margin. And on Proposition 15 in California, which would have raised taxes on commercial properties based on market value, voters also narrowly said no. And last, perhaps the biggest failure of this election cycle for labor was Prop 22. We reported on this in the last episode. It was a proposition that basically was handcrafted by Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and other gig work companies, and it would take rideshare and delivery drivers out of the scope of the landmark gig worker law, AB5. So these drivers would be carved out of the coverage of the law, which would be ironic since Uber and DoorDash were some of the original inspirations for creating that law in the first place. So instead of the guarantees of full employment rights that AB5 offered, those drivers will now get a watered-down set of extremely minimal benefits, and Uber and Lyft have now boasted that their success in rewriting California's labor law, with about $200 million in PR money behind it, has inspired them to take their show on the road and try to lobby for similar legislation in other states and localities. In the last episode, we spoke with Nicole Moore of the advocacy group Rideshare Drivers United about the campaign against Prop 22, and I caught up with her after the election for her response on how the grassroots opposition was defeated. Prop 22 is a draconian loss for for drivers, you know, and delivery workers. Um, it, you know, um, codifies that we're only paid uh, while we're engaged in work. Imagine being a cashier at a large department store and you're only getting paid while somebody is, you know, um, r- ringing up their order and paying it. You know, I mean, this is, um, you know, I talked to um, a couple of folks who were uh, delivery workers last night. They've been waiting in line um, with 12 to 14 other delivery workers at a restaurant where there was some kitchen problem. Uh, one of them had been waiting for two hours for a couple of orders to deliver, and um, most of them had been there for over an hour. Um, and basically, this uh, Prop 22 says that those people are not paid for their work waiting for food um, to deliver to uh, customers. Um, So, I mean, it's um, a huge loss. We will absolutely fight it. Um, We'll fight it in the courts. We'll fight it with new laws. And we will fight it um, the way drivers... um, have been most successful, which is with shoe leather and um, and picket signs. Um, we will continue to have a ground fight because um, you can't make a living um, on the rates and uh, the methods that Uber and Lyft have put forward. Um, it, you know what they have codified is actually worse than what they're currently pay, paying us and um, is certainly worse than basic labor law, which is honestly a very low bar. Um, And, uh, you know, I mean, I think we at Rideshare Drivers United, you know, being a driver-led driver organization, you know, we are clear that drivers cannot be second-class 
workers. We don't have a different set of rules governing our work than anybody else. And if we're going to succeed in the future of work, um, you know, we're going to succeed because we have basic labor standards as a country that basically, unless you're a legitimate business owner, a legitimate independent contractor, those rules apply to you. And that we are raising that bar together. Do you think that the the pandemic and sort of the the huge losses that drivers have taken in the past six months were a factor in pushing this forward in the sense that people are like, okay, well, you know, uh, if I side with this law, then uh, Uber and Lyft are significant uh, significant employers, though they deny being employers. But like, you know, were were people willing to side with Uber and Lyft given the economic downturn? I think what they did is the same way companies have painted themselves as um, green as a marketing technique. I think Uber and Lyft painted uh, Prop 22 as a civil rights um, and, uh, you know, working people's law. Uh, I think, you know, the California electorate wants to help um, drivers and they voted for it thinking it was. There was a early study an early poll um, of early voters who voted yes, it showed that 40% of the voters um, who voted yes were doing it in order to improve the pay um, for for drivers. Um, so people voted thinking they were doing the right thing. Um, and that's, um, you know, the, the costume that, you know, um, Lyft and Uber put around Prop 22 um, and basically deceived uh, voters. Um, I will say, I mean, we reached out to more than a million people through texts and phone banks. These are voters, like just with, you know, Right Here Drivers United. And when you had conversation with a voter who was leaning yes based on everything they'd seen, and when you explained to them what really was going on with the law, um, they changed their mind. The the question is, um, did we have the same reach with twelve to fifteen million dollars versus their two hundred million plus? That was Nicole Moore of Rideshare Drivers United. I am biased, perhaps, since I have spent much of the last year living in Philadelphia, but Pennsylvania wound up a key state in this election. And somewhat, it often seems, in spite of the official Democratic Party's efforts. Pennsylvania Stands Up is one of many organizations that did that work during this election cycle. So I talked to Hannah Lorison, director of the organization, about the canvassing they did, the results in Pennsylvania, and what they're building for the future. We've really taken the the best learnings uh, from our work in recent years about how to build um, distributed teams uh, to engage volunteers to register, to mobilize, um, and to persuade voters. And we learned, uh, we pivoted uh, during the primary to using phone and text as our, our primary method of contacting voters. And as much as the, you know, the pandemic uh, took us off the doors where we might have been in an, in an ordinary year, um, I think it also really created an opportunity for um, people to have 
open conversations about um, the, the the challenges that they're facing in their communities. Um, people spoke really candidly about um, struggles with losing healthcare, with losing their jobs, with um, with food insecurity, um, in a way that perhaps under uh, more normal business as usual circumstances they wouldn't have. So Pennsylvania's stands up, um, made close to 7 million phone calls and sent almost 2 million texts to voters um, in the general election. And we had uh, more than 400,000 phone calls with everyday Pennsylvanians about the issues that are on their minds. And I really think that uh, the, the pandemic was the a defining issue in this election because it really exposed how vulnerable we all are uh, when we don't have a government that we can trust to have our backs. Yeah, so give us a little background on the organization and the work that you've been doing across Pennsylvania. Absolutely. Um, Pennsylvania Stands Up is a uh, multiracial grassroots organization um, made up of everyday uh, people, young and old, urban and rural, uh, black, brown and white, um, coming together um, because we really believe that our government should uh, represent all of us and ultimately work for all of us. And so uh, we came together as an organization in 2019, um, building on some of the um, grassroots organizing that really was fomented um, uh, after Trump's election. And uh, decided very deliberately to organize in um, in communities that have been uh, left behind, um, left behind uh, by large corporations who are struggling economically, um, but also who are left behind by the um, traditional political infrastructure. And you know, if you look back a few decades ago, um, the political and civic landscape of Pennsylvania looked really different. Um, labor was much stronger, um, and there was po there were political organizations in the center of the state. Um, but really, since the 70s, um, the Democratic Party and uh, many progressive uh, organizations have really uh, focused their organizing work in primarily in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, and left the. Um, the rest of the state uh, uh, to be dominated by, uh, uh, you know, a narrative defined by Fox News um, and uh, other right wing media. And there isn't there hasn't been for a really long time in Pennsylvania sustained long term um, political infrastructure um, in uh the small and medium cities in South Central Pennsylvania, in Erie, the Lehigh Valley, um, let alone um, the the rural counties in, in Pennsylvania. And so for quite a period of time, there's been this um, steady drift towards the Republican Party. Um, and Pennsylvania um, uh, Democrats have really struggled to win races um, outside of uh, Philadelphia and Allegheny counties and their suburbs. Yeah, so the race was called in Pennsylvania, right? That this was the state that when they called Pennsylvania for Biden, put him over the top. Um, but of course, Trump has not admitted that. And he and his allies are trying to um, contest the results in a variety of ways, though it looks maybe less like they're going to succeed in that than we might have originally feared. Um, but what did and do you have as an organization plan to ensure that votes are counted and to stand up for the results that we've seen here? Look, we know that um, that Trump 
wins when he sows chaos and confusion. And he signaled really clearly, um, you know, beginning this summer, what his strategy would be, um, threatening legal action, um, tweeting um, relentlessly about um, fraud in our election system. And uh, we, we knew because we were running a really large scale field operation and having thousands and thousands and thousands of conversations with everyday Pennsylvanians, we felt really sure that Pennsylvania had uh, the votes to elect Joe Biden president, which is in fact what happened. Um, so we began organizing um, with other progressive organizations in Pennsylvania beginning this summer and into the fall in the event that Trump would do exactly what he said he would do, um, which is to send in, send in his lawyers on a, uh, a hunt for cases of fraud. And I think it's important to note that it, um, as of the time of this recording, there is one documented case of fraud in, in Pennsylvania, which was, in fact, a Republican uh, casting a vote for Trump on behalf of his deceased mother. Um, so we mobilized very quickly after the election. Um, rallies to demand that every vote be counted um, as a form of really joyful resistance. Um, in uh, We held 45 rallies over the period uh, from uh, Wednesday until the vote was called on Saturday. And I think did a really powerful job of, uh, of making the case that in Pennsylvania, everyone counts and that every vote should be counted um, and really shifted the conversation away from uh, from Trump's insistence that there was that there was fraud and that his his lawsuits were going to be uh, what determined the outcome. Um, we are really clear that in our democracy, it's it's everyday voters um, who get to decide and, um, you know, here in Philadelphia in particular, I think we can um, <laughs> you sort of enjoy the end or the descent of Trump's power um, uh, when he tried to hold a press conference at the convention center where the votes were being tallied. Um, he was drowned out by DJs uh, holding a dance party and <laughs> and very joyfully uh, resisting his his attempts to uh, shift the narrative in his favor. Yeah, it was uh, it was a big old party. Um, which was a lot of fun. So, but going forward, we know that Joe Biden is already looking to compromise with Republicans, having invited, um, of all people, everyone's favorite John Kasich to speak at the DNC. So what are you and your members looking for from a Biden administration? And what are you planning on doing to hold this administration accountable to the people that actually put them in office? Absolutely. Um, so we're we're looking at his uh, his appointments um, and uh, looking very carefully at who he's going to be surrounding himself with, um, because we know those are the people um, who will be influencing his agenda. Um, and together with our national partners, um, getting really clear about um, who we who we want to see in the administration. Um, the second piece, I think, is really articulating our vision of what we what we stand for, and I think that's that's incredibly important um, uh, for organizations uh, like like Pennsylvania Stands Up um, to have a vision of what we what we want to see. Um, things like uh, Medicare for all, like a Green New Deal. Um, uh, a, def a broad agenda of defunding the police and investing in our communities. Um, these are really important uh, values and, and a vision um, 
of the of a future where we all have what we need. Um, and I think uh, at this moment in time um, where um, progressive organizations have shown, I think, such strategic discipline in um, working to elect a candidate um, with whom we are not fully uh, fully aligned in terms of the direction that the country needs to go. Um, you know, this next period, these next 100 days um, are a really important moment to um, make very clear uh, to, to Joe Biden that that strategic unity in uh, during the election period um, now uh, gives us a seat at the at the table to determine the the priorities. And I think that this, you know, continues to be really important for the Biden administration um, because, uh, you know, our analysis is that in the end of the day, uh, Trump is really the at this at this point or or, you know, prior to, to Joe Biden's victory, the the pinnacle of a of a party that um seeks to strategically divide us um, in order to make sure that the greedy few at the top stay in power. And uh, it's really incumbent upon the Biden administration to secure um, really bold victories for uh, for working people uh, so that we don't find ourselves uh, four years from now um, with a, you know, a, a Trump-like candidate, um, perhaps one who is even more effective than the, uh, than the outgoing president. Yeah. Okay. I can't resist asking because you specifically mentioned defund the police and because some parts of the party are already trying to blame defund the police for perhaps less than um, stellar uh, results in the House and Senate for the Democrats. Um, what do you say to people who say that, like, you know, working class people outside of the cities don't want to hear about defunding the police? What I would say on the subject of uh, defunding the police is that um, white supremacy has had a 400 plus year reign in this in this country. And um, we've just, uh, we are in the middle of one of the largest periods of social uprising um, in, in our lifetimes, um, perhaps in our in our country. Um, and that is the movement for black lives. And when I hear pundits um, trying to blame uh, demands to defund the police for uh, uh, for election outcomes, um, I hear them doing the work of the of the GOP and the right uh, who have strategically used race to divide us, and we. Uh, very much reject that analysis. Um, that's not to say that we don't have work to do uh, as uh, white people and uh, with white voters um, to break down how we all lose um, when we accept the divisions of race and class um, and geography um, as a given. Um, but we know that when we have conversations one-on-one -on -one with voters, um, that we can really move that them on these um, on uh, this sort of strategic racism um, here in Pennsylvania uh, last fall we uh, did a really interesting piece of work where we uh, connected with uh, voters in rural Pennsylvania specifically on their anti-immigrant attitudes and um, these voters would candidly share uh, pretty racist anti-immigrant beliefs 
Um, but we trained our canvassers and uh, to stay in the conversation and to share uh, their own their own experiences, their own stories, and found that um, when uh, when we listen, um, when we are non-judgmental, and um, uh, when we're vulnerable ourselves, uh, that we can move white people on their uh, on their racism. And I believe that that's what's necessary in the conversation around around policing in this country um, is is the work of uh, relational organizing and uh, conversations uh, with voters who are, you know, in a media environment where there are very loud voices uh, uh, who would seek to quiet this powerful social movement that's happening. And I believe that uh, if we if we do that work, um, the vision of communities where we invest in schools, where we invest in social services, uh, where we invest in healthcare, as an alternative to the overinvestment in police, ultimately um, that we will be we will be stronger and um, more powerful than ever before. That was Hannah Lorison of PA Stands Up, and we will put more information up at the Descent website. On a previous episode of Belabored, we reported on a new union formed at the Democracy Collaborative, a DC-based think tank. It was part of a wave of nonprofits that were recently organized under the banner of the Nonprofit Professionals Employee Union, or NPEU. But unfortunately, having a union doesn't mean your job is completely secure, and the organization has just decided to lay off about a third of its staff. Now the staff and the management are still currently in negotiations, but the NPEU has been publicly pressuring the Democracy Collaborative management to strengthen its severance offer for the workers. The Democracy Collaborative, for its part, posted an announcement on its website claiming that it had offered very generous severance packages already, and it also explained, quote, we have tried really hard to get this right and looked carefully at the capacities and skills we need as part of becoming a more focused operation. We have tried to offer as much support as we can to the staff that we reluctantly decided will be laid off in this difficult transition. We knew it would be painful, unquote. Yeah, but they probably don't know how painful it exactly is for the people who are about to lose their jobs. The NPEU just released a statement denouncing the move and declaring that, quote, these layoffs are being made without acknowledging the impact it will have on remaining staff. And we also stand in solidarity with our colleagues navigating the ambiguity of the work ahead. This decision is particularly disappointing as we approach the one-year anniversary of our contract ratification, unquote. Although the pandemic has not triggered a wave of layoffs across the nonprofit sector, as the NPEU had initially feared, the group says that the democracy collaborative layoffs hit especially hard because they are being undertaken not out of economic contingency, but by choice. I talked to Caleb Lado, the president of the NPEU, about the negotiations at the Democracy Collaborative and what the situation says about organizing at nonprofits in general. We were shocked and saddened and disappointed to receive notice um, a few weeks ago that the leadership of the Democracy Collaborative decided to make voluntary non-economic layoffs of about a third of their bargaining unit during the pandemic. At NPU, you know, during the pandemic, we've been bracing for, you know, there might there might be a flood of economic layoffs at some point. Um, you know, if donors are affected by the recession and and units have to make layoffs. Um, but we never expected that a unit would be that management would be making 
kind of discretionary, non-economic layoffs during this horrible, unprecedented pandemic. And so at the moment, we're trying to fight for fair severance for the workers affected by this. So is there, this may be an obvious question, but is there anything you can do to fight the layoffs themselves? Or is that kind of a done deal at this point? Well, you know, management said that they were open to creative solutions, but then when the union um, tried to ask for ways in which um, the employees could keep their jobs, uh, you know, management didn't seem open to that, um, which is is really disappointing because so they're restructuring the organization and claim that um, so six employees are being laid off and they, they claim that there isn't a place in the organization for this these six employees anymore. And, um, you know, within the democracy collaborative contract, they have language around uh, management paying for uh, professional development training and being able to retrain people if needed. Um, And management has basically claimed that no amount of training will uh, help these workers to be able to get the credentials that they're looking for in the new organization. As nonprofit workers, we work at our organizations because we care about the mission of the organization. And, you know, I've long admired the Democracy Collaborative's work. Their workers do amazing research on ways to create a more democratic economy and ways to create better um, power dynamics within worker ownership of businesses. And it's just extremely disappointing to see the hypocrisy of their management um, making these unilateral decisions that affect a huge amount of their bargaining unit and are really creating this economic uncertainty for their very own workers in a horrible labor market that we're all experiencing. You had mentioned earlier that uh, NPEU had been bracing for a bunch of layoffs, layoffs that are justified um, on an economic basis. Um, have you have you not seen those, or is this the calm before the storm? <laughs> yeah, I mean, knock on wood, but um, we we've had management. So we represent workers at over thirty nonprofits at the moment, and management at every other nonprofit has prioritized the job security of their workers right now. Um, You know, many of our nonprofits, including the Democracy Collaborative, received PPP loans. I think people realize that this is a time to hunker down and kind of weather the storm. Um, And so it's just bewildering to me why an organization would voluntarily lay off their staff right now. You know, we have workers whose families are are depending on them um, for health care and um, people who help pay for their parents and, you know, things like that. And, and like just knowing how expensive rent in D.C. and paying student loans and everything is that it just I, I'm legitimately concerned about their ability to make ends meet before they find another job. That was Caleb Blatto, president of the NPEU. So election day has come and gone. True, the nightmare of the election season appears to be dragging on and on as Trump plods on with his increasingly desperate legal battles. But we do know, at least, that Biden has essentially won the Electoral College by a considerable margin. And we also know that the final vote tally, despite polls that suggested otherwise, was much closer than what many had hoped. So what do we make of this victory for the Democrats? 
How does the presidential vote square with what voters voted on elsewhere on the ballot? And what has been the role of the labor movement in the election? And what should labor expect under a future Biden administration? Longtime listeners might recall that exactly four years ago, our post-election day episode of 2016 featured Stephanie Luce, a labor scholar at the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York, where I have also taught. It was a fairly grim conversation back in 2016, so we decided to do a redo under somewhat happier circumstances in the wake of Trump's defeat. So here's Stephanie again, reflecting on what happened up and down the ballot this time around. When we spoke last time four years ago, I remember, I think I was in such shock that I was having trouble processing what happened. This time we've had some more time to think about it. And I think my takeaway is is a really mixed bag. I think we can find positive signs and negative signs. Certainly a positive sign would be getting Trump out. And obviously that's not a done deal yet, but Trump has been kind of an unmitigated disaster for working people from his appointments at the Department of Labor and the Education Department uh, to, you know, the ways in which he's uh, interfered with the NLRB and just the general tone that he's set for workers' rights in this country. So getting rid of Trump as president is is a great step forward. Um, you know, obviously Biden's agenda, his platform makes some um very strong promises for labor. But if the Democrats don't control the Senate, and even if they do, it's not clear that any of those uh, policy platforms can pass. And so right now, it seems like, you know, getting Biden in is, is a good defensive move for labor. It's not clear yet if there's a path towards a real offensive move, at least at the federal level. Um, and then I think, you know, there's all kinds of different dimensions to look at this. One is, um, you know, what are what did unions themselves do in this race? And I think that, again, we have a mixed story. We have the example of um, the Union 2020 program with SEIU and CWA and AFT and NEA and some other unions that really uh, made a serious program to go back to the, you know, the states in the Midwest and to battleground states and do serious targeted outreach to union members that I think the labor movement should have been doing all along. You know, I think unions have often relied too much on TV ads and consultants and have not done the hard work of, you know, voter to voter outreach. I think Unite Here is a great example of a union that just went hard and heavy and put all in. Um, hiring, you know, laid off uh, hotel workers, uh, United Here members, and then bringing in tons of volunteers to knock on doors and talk to voters. Um, I think Working America also made an effort. So I think we saw some positive trends for what some of the unions did um, in terms of trying to reach voters. And, and, and I think they had a real impact. Um, on the other hand, we see some negative outcomes. We see, at least if you can take the exit polls seriously, and it's not clear you can, but exit polls show that union household votes went up for Trump in Ohio and in Pennsylvania. It was 57% of voters from union households in Ohio voted for Trump, 51% in Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, it's a big difference. And in, in California, it was 34% from union households, but, uh, you know, that was slightly higher than the state average. So we see some cases where it may be that union members are even more likely to vote for Trump. Um, and I think that reflects, you know, a, a part of the labor movement that has done very little to really engage their membership and talk about issues. 
And their members rightly have a very strong critique of the Democratic Party that brought them um, very little in the last couple of decades. So without a serious, you know, rethinking of what the labor movement is about, um, you know, I don't see these trends changing anytime soon. So how do you think labor issues actually um, actually factored into this, the electoral campaigns? Because I, I think compared to 2016, when we had all the hubbub around the carrier plant and Trump was really doubling down on his populist message and loved the photo ops with factory workers and, you know, in hard hats and whatnot. Um, in 2020, like, I feel that the sort of appeal to the Rust Belt or, you know, what is popularly perceived as being sort of the blue collar American worker, um, that was sort of in the, that was, that took sort of a back seat um, to <laughs> other, I mean, honestly, it, it's hard to figure out what, the last few months of the campaign were about. It was we were in the middle of a global health crisis, and there were conspiracy theories flying everywhere. So I'm not really sure there was that much substantive conversation about anything. But um, yeah. but yeah, I guess uh, I mean, how do you feel um, the sort of the populist message um, played into the sort of the the final race uh, between Biden and Trump, neither of whom um, are particularly uh, inspiring for many people <laughs> in the labor movement, um, at least on, on the left. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is another, yeah, really mixed bag. And we see, you know, looking at ballot initiatives, for example, um, really contradictory outcomes, perhaps, for example, minimum wage of $15 an hour passes in Florida, you know, it needed 60% to pass and, and it did. Um, and yet the state goes for Trump. And meanwhile, in California, uh, you know, certainly the ballot initiative uh, around gig uh, workers, Uber, Lyft initiative um, failed. Um, attempts to, you know, make fair taxes and tax commercial properties in California failed, despite the state going strongly for Biden. Um, so we see like some mixed outcomes. You know, there were some positive things. Arizona, you know, passed a t tax the rich to pay for teachers, but then uh, progressive taxes failed in Illinois. So I think the takeaway for me is that you know, labor issues were not central. Workers' rights were not central to any of the, you know, electoral season. Um, really, the the most we heard of it was in terms of like the economy, but we didn't hear a really clear, um, you know, cohesive message or program about what that looks like. And I think that reflects um, kind of, I would say, a contradiction between, you know, Trump's plan is basically, you know, bash every other country and. Um, blame them for America's, uh, you know, labor issues or, or blame, you know, a fake pandemic, as he calls it, for the, the economy. Whereas Biden's, you know, history shows, you know, a neoliberal solution. And that's not a solution. That's not going to create jobs. It's not going to create good jobs. And so um, I don't think the Democrats, you know, have kind of painted themselves into a corner because if they want to appease their Wall Street backers, uh, they can't really, you know, back things like a Green New Deal. Um, but if they want to appeal to the labor movement, you know, like they, they don't have much to offer, you know, Biden endorsed a $15 an hour minimum wage. He said he would support the PRO Act. Um, but I don't think most people know what the PRO Act is. And I don't think the average union member was voting based on labor law reform. Yeah. I mean, if anything, this is essentially a plebiscite on the last four years of Trumpism. <laughs> so, yes. um, and, and I think, you know, 
it seems it seems like the way the 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 tone on which the campaigns ended um, seems so different from maybe the outset of the Democratic primaries, where um, for a while it really looked like Sanders was kind of ascendant there, and um, there was hope that perhaps a strong economic populist, you know, pro worker message might really penetrate into the mainstream. Um, you know, those hopes were sadly dashed um, for a variety of reasons. But um, uh, why do you think that didn't really take? I mean, was it perhaps a miscalculation uh, on the part of people who were going really hard for Sanders or, or maybe just the neoliberal elements of the Democratic Party sort of converged and made sure that, you know, that uh, sort of centrism would prevail? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a good question. And, you know, I keep thinking back even to 2016 and the excitement around Sanders. And, you know, I definitely i am not one of those people that will say that Sanders would have won. I don't know. But I do think we will not survive as a country without some of Sanders' types of policies, right? There is no way out of this without things like Medicare for all, things like a Green New Deal, fair taxation, repealing tap Trump tax cuts. Um, and we will not make it out of this without making racial justice front and center. So I take hope from the down ballot victories that we saw many of the, I think all of the candidates that ran for local and state office who endorsed Medicare for all and Green New Deal won their seats. Well, no, not all, but uh, uh, I would say many of them. And we saw examples of, you know, I liked the contrast of comparing um, Amy McGrath in Kentucky that ran on basically no platform, you know, no real message other than I'm not Mitch McConnell you know, she lost, she got like 37% of the vote. And just next door in Tennessee, uh, Marquita Bradshaw did run on a a Medicare for All and Green New Deal platform. She also lost, but with about the same percentage of the vote. So I think, you know, for me, the lesson is, um, whether it's Bernie Sanders himself as a person, we have to be promoting and running on policies that will actually make a difference, that will actually rebuild the economy, create jobs, uh, deal with climate crisis, um, and I would say, and center racial justice front and center. Um, but yeah, your question about what happened with San- why didn't Sanders win? That's a hard one. It to me, it seems like some of each. Like the left certainly miscalculated the the number of young voters that were going to turn out, the number of first time voters that were going to turn out, um, and then I think the the mainstream, the center of the Democratic National uh, Party, really went hard uh, for for Biden, and they pulled out all the tricks. Over the past year, or maybe just in the past few months, um, one area in which um, labor has been tested um, in terms of its politics is in the racial justice protests and the debate around defunding the police. There was, um, you know, kind of a a discussion that opened up with uh, the focus on Black Lives Matter and what that would mean for the labor movement and why it perhaps um, had a lot of work to do in terms of really seizing on this moment to take a hard look at its own history and its own politics. I definitely think every union needs to step up. I don't know that centering around one demand around police unions is is the way to go or or even defunding the police, because I think there's, you know, racial justice is a 
you know, vast comprehensive agenda. You know, I uh, talked to people at 1199 New England this summer who were, you know, they represent predominantly black and brown nursing home workers who were dying at a very high rate from in the nursing homes from COVID. And, you know, our racial justice agenda is, you know, centering uh, getting safety standards and um, taking care of workers who are on the front lines. So I think racial justice um, has to be thought of as a, a very comprehensive focus from, uh, you know, from the political education of just basic uh, learning about our country's history, learning about uh, the what racial capitalism is, um, up to like how it impacts members differently and workers differently in the workplace, um, up to um, building worker power in um, communities with uh, with allied organizations and through you know initiatives like bargaining for the common good. So I think it might be different for different unions depending on their membership and where they're at. But yes, I agree. It has to be uh, front and center. There's no way we can just survive on this kind of, you know, avoid sensitive topics. Don't talk about Trump. Don't talk about race. Let's just focus on our wage increase. That certainly signals to me the death of the labor movement. You had mentioned the exit polls earlier and how uh, it seems like, at least from the recent exit polls, that... uh, Overall, union voters were perhaps broadly speaking split about 50-50. I mean, they seem to sort of reflect, you know, the general population. Or do you think that perhaps it's not all that useful to try to analyze how union voters vote as a block simply because unions are pretty diverse and their individual union members are more likely maybe to vote in accordance with their demographics rather than what their unions are telling them to vote like or like how salient is uh, the labor movement today as as a political block? <laughs> is it useful to think of it that way? Yeah. Yeah. And I should I should say nationally, actually, the exit polls show the union household vote moving in the direction of Biden uh, compared to Clinton. So that nationally, the numbers were more supportive of Biden um, and, and more closer to their historic, the, the rates that they had been, you know, but we've, you know, seen for many years and, you know, in the, in the eighties, a lot of union household members voted for Reagan in the nineties, it went back, you know, like down again and, and it was mostly democratic, but there's always been a sizable block of union members that uh, vote for Republicans. Um, and yes, I think my view is that, first of all, exit polls are shaky. They're not designed to capture union membership. There's only seven states in which the majority of union members live. So it's very hard to uh, draw really strong conclusions. I think better, if we can, rely on the union's own internal polling, although they don't tend to release that. But I think... Um, to me, what it ref- you know the most important thing would be for each individual union to really do the hard internal work of assessing where their members are at, getting a sense of variation within the union. I mean, a large union could have everyone from you know prison guards to childcare workers within it. So even just assessing what does it mean to be an SEIU voter or an AFSCME voter or something like that is not always clear. Um, but uh, you know, ideally, the the organizing work is having the conversations with workers about what issues matter to them. You know, I think the deep canvassing model sounds you know like it's been a promising way to go. I mean, obviously, that's harder to do at scale, but you know, it doesn't have to be done by staff. It could be member to member, and and a, a mission to you know get union members talking to union members about um, the issues that they care about, and you know, refocusing that 
you know, the unions have earned some bad reputation themselves because they tended to just, you know, make endorsements without member input, throw huge money at candidates without really, you know, necessarily strategy, put a lot of money into things like TV ads, you know, and I think that really turned around this year. I was encouraged by, you know, that that reverse of trend um, to say, like, let's actually talk to the members and, and have some um, real conversations. I, you know, I think historically, you know, there were a lot of union members that voted Republican, but less so than their counterparts. So, for example, white men tend to vote overwhelmingly Republican, white male union members, mm -hmm. much less so. That seems like that's a historic relationship that may be starting to break down. Like, um, And so that's what, you know, seems um, worrisome. Forward-looking notes. For me, unfortunately, my, you know, I think that the most relevant policies uh, are already off the table for the Biden administration, which, like I said, is a Green New Deal and Medicare for all. But, you know, he has made commitments to some modified versions um, uh, of, of these programs. Um, and so I would love to see those go forward. I know many people in the labor movement are very invested in labor law reform. Um, it's not that that's a bad thing. Like there's clearly a need for it. U.S. labor law is terrible. It's, you know, it's, it's some of the worst in the world. Uh, it needs to be reformed. I just don't see that as a, like a big issue that's going to be galvanizing for movements. And I don't think anything's going to pass without big movements behind them. And so I think to me, that seems like a hard sell and it doesn't seem like the one that you come out of the, you know, out of the gate swinging on. I think um, massive public investment in job creation and job creation centered around climate change and climate reform is uh, really what I'd like to see first and foremost. And those jobs being, you know, good jobs that pay a living wage that come with health benefits. Um, I think that could make a big difference for our economy and it could make a big difference for dealing with this pandemic. And that was Stephanie Luce of the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. In another reprise of 2016's post-election episode, we are going to talk about Arizona again. Back in 2016, there were huge organizing efforts led by immigrants' rights activists. In 2020, Arizona was also a big political flashpoint, with even stronger organizing among immigrant communities, as well as a ballot measure to raise taxes on the wealthy to fund public education. That initiative came in the wake of a huge strike wave led by teachers across the country, which crystallized in what has been dubbed the Red for Ed movement. I spoke to Joe Thomas, president of the Arizona Education Association, about how the union mobilized their members in the lead up to the election, how they hope to put the money to use, how teachers have dealt with the pandemic, and what the Red for Ed movement has to look forward to over the next four years. Proposition 208 was what it was called once it was on the ballot. Uh, it's also known as the Invest in Education Act. And what it did was created a new revenue stream by assessing a 3.5% um, income tax surcharge on high income earners. So if you are a person filing um, by yourself, your, your taxes uh, as an individual, uh, it exempts the first $250,000 of taxable income and then applies the three and a half percent surcharge to any income that's taxable after that. For joint filers, um, the exemption was $500,000. So it really only impacted um, one or two percent of the population in Arizona and people that um, are doing quite well. Um, they're they're successful. Um, and uh, we we didn't feel and we didn't see support for another uh, increase to the sales tax or property tax or any of the other mechanisms that we did test and survey and, and, and look at. So the three and a half percent income tax surcharge, the Department of Revenue in Arizona indicated pre-COVID 
that that would generate $940 million. Um, once um, we were in the midst of the pandemic, the Department of Revenue adjusted that, I believe, to $820 million, which is still um, a significant addition into um, our district budgets across the states. Where that money goes once it's collected is 50% of the funds that are collected would go to um, primarily teacher pay and creating new positions, but it's really all non-administrative certificated personnel. So counselors, nurses, social workers, anyone that requires a certificate that's not an in, in an administrative position would have access to those funds. 25% goes to our classified staff. So of all the money raised, one fourth of it would now be voter protected to go to our crossing guards, our instructional assistants, our media aides, our health assistants, security, all of the people that um, clock in and, and do critical uh, work. Uh, so I, as a classroom teacher, can focus on, on simply teaching. Uh, and that's the first time we've ever had funds that are dedicated, that are permanent, and that are voter protected towards our classified staff. And so we were really, um, this was an area that the union really, that we did push because we wanted to see that. 10% goes to a mentoring system for our first, second, and third year teachers uh, that would create a new system, um, also with standards to make sure they're supported. 12% would go to um, grants that districts could apply for for up to five years that they could hire a new counselor, they could hire counselors through again, or they could create um, dual enrollment programs, at-risk programs, or career and technical education programs. Um, this was uh, another piece that the voters, when we did surveys and, and polls to see what were critical elements they wanted to see implemented, this was something that came up time and time again. They wanted to have more opportunities, especially in our rural areas, for students to have access to high quality professional skills they could graduate with and immediately enter the workforce um, and, and earn great salaries. The last 3% um, added to an, an already existing program called the Arizona Teachers Academy, which is set up to pay um, part of the tuition and fees for students that enroll in the colleges of education in, in Arizona, and then stay in Arizona and teach four years. And uh, that 3% would be about $26, $27 million. So we're, we tried to create um, four different buckets of money, um, that or five different buckets of money, excuse me, that would attract more people into the profession, support them for the first four years once they're in the profession, and give um, all districts the ability to have competitive wages and salaries uh, with all school employees. We, we mobilized our members around this by asking them what it was they wanted in it. And so this goes back to 2018 on the heels of the Red for Ed movement. We had already been in the, the winter before, the winter of 2017, we had already been working on um, something like this and asking our educators, what are the most critical needs you have inside your district? Asking parents the same thing. And so we had a very similar proposal that we put, uh, that we collected signatures for in 2018, but the Arizona Supreme Court in a, a move that had never happened before in the hundred plus years of Arizona being a state, they kicked us off the ballot because of the, um, well, it's a technicality, but but it really was a technicality the way we described the initiative on the petitions we put out. So we learned from that and, and understood we were playing not only by the, the rules that are in the constitution and statute, but we were playing by some partisan political rules as well. And so we went back out 
in 2020, first off, having to convince everybody that their time would be worth it, that they we weren't going to get kicked off the ballot again. And even though we couldn't guarantee that, we kept telling everybody, we have to do this. We have to collect enough signatures to where they, they, they'll think twice about trying to uh, you know, pull those shenanigans again. And we launched in February uh, our petitions, and the pandemic hit in Arizona very quickly afterwards. And um, about six weeks later, all of our schools had closed to in-person instruction, and we had moved to online and distance learning. And that's how we finished out that, that May, that, that fourth quarter. And so we had to get very creative um, and we had to provide space for our members to be very creative in how they would collect signatures. And so sometimes people would mask up and they would have gloves and they would have one use pins, um, sanitary wipes, and they would set up a table out in a parking lot at a, at a business that was friendly with us. And they wanted to support teachers as well and, and schools as well. And we would have people drive up. And, you know, we would we would put on social media where we were going to be in that community and people would come in and they would have their masks on and it would be outside and they would sign. Some people set that up in their garages and advertised to their their neighborhoods. Um, we ended up mailing um, petitions to almost every one of our members asking them just to get this was at the height of the pandemic. Just get the signatures in your household. Don't don't risk going out and collecting signatures. Just get the two or three signatures in your household. Um, and uh, it was amazing to watch all that work and to see how courageous not only our educators and our education supporters were, but the voters were and how um, determined they were to see this get back on the ballot. We collected 424,000 signatures, I think, um, in a pandemic. Uh, it was amazing to watch. And I think that we saw that um, support for education as it played out where we uh, we won and we um, uh, the, the percentage was close, but we won by almost 100,000 votes. And we won against a no campaign that spewed lies and mistruths the second they started. Um, and it was, they've done a lot of damage. That no campaign has done a lot of damage to the public trust in our, in our schools that we're all going to have to rebuild in the years moving forward. But we're excited that it passed. Um, and now our, um, when we start to see that money flow into our districts, our local associations are going to be bargaining and meeting with our um, district bargaining teams on the best way to move that money into people's paychecks, uh, into creating new positions to cut workload, um, into uh, supporting educators as best they need it right now and into the future. Um, so we're really excited that it passed. Uh, we had no doubt. We were very confident all the way through. Um, but nothing, there's just it, it, it doesn't it, it's not complete until all the votes are counted and you see that you've 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 done great work alongside your members and alongside the community to to bring in a significant uh, revenue stream permanently uh, into your schools. It's kind of amazing that there is such a robust no campaign. It seems like funding for schools shouldn't really be that controversial, but uh, that is the world we live in these days. So um, I get my my follow up question to that would be why why was a ballot initiative of this kind needed? Um, you know, generally speaking, we look to legislatures um, to deal with school funding. Uh, how how is the legislature working in Arizona with respect to um, public schools, and and why did you feel like you needed to take this issue directly to voters? Well, we have a governor that said in the state of this state speech the day we announced that we were going out, he changed his speech to direct um, comments at us, saying that 
uh, Arizona would not raise taxes on his watch. Not now, not ever. And, and you can go back and you can find that direct quote. Um, it still rings in my ears. Um, the legislature um, has uh, has a high ceiling for enacting new revenue streams. They have to have a supermajority to create a new tax, whereas they only need a simple majority to create tax cuts, um, uh, reduce taxes across the board, or create new tax loopholes. So I couldn't tell you the last time that an Arizona legislature has enacted a new tax in session. Um, they have the constitutional authority to do so, and I think they have the responsibility. Our constitution says that they have to um, uh, provide and uh, uh, maintain a uniform public school system. And year in, year out, we have uh, the lowest funding, and we have uh, the lowest teacher salaries, and we have the highest class sizes, and that's led to a teacher shortage. We can't fill all the positions we have in Arizona. We have almost 2,000 positions every year that we cannot fill, and, and that's about 50,000 kids that don't have a qualified certified teacher in their classroom, something that every parent assumes their child is going to get off that yellow bus and, and, and walk to is a great classroom with a fantastic teacher that feels supported. And in, and in almost all of our classrooms, we can say that, but in 2000 of them, we can't. And so we saw a legislature that refused even during the midst of the red for ed movement to bring in, um, all of the resources it, it needed. They, they attempted to buy off educators with one of the five demands that came out of the Red for Ed movement, which was an immediate 20% raise, which would give us um, somewhat competitive salaries. Well, they drug that out over three years um, and didn't provide enough resources really to give a 20% raise to every teacher. And that's another whole story. And the, the way that they um, they create their legislation, there's always fine print that you have to read. So we knew we weren't going to get anything out of this governor or this legislature. We knew we were going to have to go to the voters. And we knew if we went to the voters, that the voters would vote yes. Every survey, every poll, every conversation, every study group, every meeting that we had showed unwavering support for our public schools. They understood where the issues were. They wanted to create great opportunities for our students. They wanted to support our school personnel. Um, beyond the classroom teacher, they understood the importance of counselors and social workers. They understood the importance of the front office staff, uh, the health assistants, um, and all of that was magnified once COVID hit. And we really saw the inequities um, that are structural in our system to where some kids still had access to a, a solid uh, quality online education and other kids just absolutely did not. Um, and so we still have a lot of work to do. Um, but this is this is a shot in the arm. And what I believe it really does. Um, and this was critical to the Red for Red movement, I, I would say, in any state is this reaffirms the educators belief in themselves that that they have agency beyond the classroom, that they 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 are they are powerful enough together and and forthright enough together to make the right choices to not just get their first graders ready for second grade or their freshman English students writing at a level to where they're going to be successful in their sophomore year, but they can change the system. They can stand up with the community and they can stand side by side and, and not only demand better schools, not only say we need better schools, but go out and change the system to where we have the resources to create those better schools.
Speaking of the Red for Ed movement, I think, you know, it was quite striking to see the big strike wave sweeping across the country and seeing educators really at the forefront of that that struggle. Um, I think in recent years and certainly during the pandemic, when we've, we've, uh, we haven't seen um, as much uh, sort of similar direct action on the part of teachers, but perhaps um, that political momentum has taken different forms, such as this referendum. Um, what do you see as the ultimate legacy of, of Red for Ed, not just in Arizona, but um, in other states as well, particularly these red states where um, you saw teachers really challenging um, legislators and, and governors that, that had not been responsive to their demands, and uh, they decided they were no longer going to play nice? Well, I, I would agree that the the statewide actions just look different now. I, I think we're about to see another set of those examples, a set of those actions that are going to roll out across um, the different states um, as educators understand that they are not going to be supported at the levels they need to be supported during this pandemic. Um, some states will do that. Some localities will do that. Some districts will do that. But we have far too many um governors, superintendents, state superintendents that are not leading in this crisis. And they are expecting our educators to perform at or near the level that they could perform when they weren't crisis teaching, when they weren't trying to um, reconnect with families that are um, being overrun by this pandemic, uh, either economically or, or through um, lack, lack of um, uh, the ability to continually access the health care that they need. Um, so I, I think we're going to see that again. Um, and I think that it's, I think it's a shame that it's necessary, but only two years ago, educators, again, they, they saw that they could speak in a way that couldn't be ignored. And I think that is the, to me, that is the lasting legacy of the Red for Ed movement. And it's what I really credit West Virginia and the educators there with doing. They, they had the same frustrations that many educators had across the United States. Um, and they decided to do something about it. They stood up and they spoke in a way that just could not be ignored. And I truly believe we had educators in the state that saw that and kind of thought, oh my gosh, we, we, could, we can do that? We, we can stand up like that? And it was incredible as an education leader um, to to see that belief because that's the only element that had been missing. Um, we had been right about what we knew we needed, what, what we knew our students needed to be supported. We had written emails. We had made phone calls. We had gone to the legislature. We had done everything that you're supposed to do by the rules as it's set up to have this exchange of information and to be represented by these people in the legislature and by a governor. And none of it mattered to enough of them. And so I, I truly believe that educators remember that powerful moment marching from the ball field down to the state capitol. And what I hope they remember is that it took eight weeks of grassroots organizing, of telling the story to parents and to each other, of, of helping each other find the courage for that march. We didn't just decide to go. We had to really decide if, if we were going to wear red shirts. I had longtime colleagues that texted me on that first Wednesday when we decided we were going to wear red shirts. And, and they said, Joe, am I going to get fired for doing this? That's where we were. That's where we started. And to see 
it's it's so vivid in my imagination that sea of red that triumphant walk with other unions and with our parents and with our students and with the the people who had already walked during the women's march and the the students that had already marched during um, the March for Our Lives. All that had happened before us. And we, we benefited from that energy and we connected to it and we welcomed it. And educators saw that regardless of what the legislature and the governor said, the people saw them as important. And I, I don't think they're ever going to forget that. And I, and I, again, I hope they remember that it took time to get there. And that's the hard part of organizing. And that's what's important about having a union is that you can, you can continue to train and you can feed that organizing and you can be the solid structure that, that, that energy can just flow through. And, and that was, that was the successful match that we had in Arizona we had this lightning in a bottle energy, but we had a structure that we could freely course that energy through. And the union couldn't have done this by itself. And the Arizona Educators United, I don't think they could have done it by themselves, but together we were able to mobilize and organize something that people will never forget. And that absolutely has changed the public education system in Arizona. Of course, you know, the hard work of organizing is the stuff that happens in the weeks and months uh, leading up to the direct action, right? I mean, you right. only see the, the, um, the, final, the final product or the, the sort of the, the outermost edge of all that work. So um, I also wanted to just uh, ask, I mean, your referendum was uh, obviously crafted before COVID-19 hit. Um, how does the devastation of state revenues change the picture in terms of revenues for schools? I mean, it seems like a lot of school districts are now leaning or pressing the federal government to come up with some kind of uh, um, at least, you know, a second round of uh, relief package. Um, is that still something that Arizona really needs badly, even with this funding infusion? Absolutely. And and, and we're going to need it beyond our, our public education system, our cities and towns, you know, basic services uh, that, that, citizens just expect you, you, you expect the fire trucks to show up if there's a house in the neighborhood that's on fire so it doesn't spread to the other houses and so no one gets injured or if they're injured they, they get the, the emergency treatment that they need. Um, uh, you, you need to have a, a safe community to live in and, and our cities and towns have been devastated through the revenue streams. So we do need to um, have some strategic relief to come in um, from the federal government to main to, to help support, our communities as we get through this. And on the other end, our communities have to, they have to mask up and we're having difficulties with that in Arizona and it's impacting our school systems. Um, we're having more spread than we should have. And um, what we're beginning to understand is it's maybe not happening at the schools, but it, it is our, it is the families and, and, and some of the educators that aren't being as um, careful as they need to be outside of school. And so we're still having uh, community spread uh, across the nation. It's significant in Arizona. It's significant. And I, I think it's got to be both approaches. We can't continue to dip into, um, uh, you know, borrow money and, and fund the things across the nation that we need 
that, that are critical and strategic to make sure that our economy can stay afloat a little bit if we're not going to do the hard work of having the adult conversations and, and changing our behaviors to make sure that we're doing everything we can to shorten the length of this virus impacting us. So schools are definitely going to need um, revenue. Um, we don't know how Arizona is going to be impacted by that, uh, to what degree. Um, we are a sales tax heavy state when it comes to revenue. Um, and so I don't know if that's going to be, um, I don't know if that's going to be good or bad for us, but we are anticipating that we're going to have cuts. We're going to tighten our belt once again. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that wasn't why we designed Invest in Ed, but every additional dollar will be critical. That was Joe Thomas of the Arizona Education Association. Finally, we go to Nevada to check in with Gioconda Arguello Klein, Secretary Treasurer for the Culinary Union, the largest affiliate of Unite Here. They represent hospitality workers in Las Vegas and Reno. With hundreds of canvassers and get out the vote volunteers, Unite Here's ground game in crucial states like Nevada and Pennsylvania sent union members to knock on hundreds of thousands of doors. They also did extensive phone, social media, and mail outreach, all the while striving to keep their volunteers safe amid the pandemic. And in Nevada, they seem to have been one of the major grassroots forces that pushed the state to turn blue this year. We feel very proud about the job United Here has been doing. You know, um, in Nevada, we're the largest local or United Here. Uh, we represent 50,000 members. And because the situation we're going through right now with this pandemic, uh, you know, we, we always been very active political and always involved in the campaigns in 2008, involved with uh, President Obama campaign, involved with Hillary Clinton campaign. But this situation with the pandemic, uh, it really was completely different uh, the way uh, we put the effort. It's been uh, having a very um, terrible impact in our life and everybody's life over here with the pandemic. Uh, you know, we have 57 members pass away with their families. And uh, half of the union, uh, you know, they are still in layoff. People, they are still unemployed. And we've been working really hard to protect uh, and helping the members. But uh, we know the first thing we need to do is to win the election to be sure we have a hope for the, for the future of us in, the, in Nevada and in the entire country, too. You know, we cannot, we, we have an intense uh, program we started early August uh, with uh, 500 campuses, you know, and this is people who they rank and file, they came from the hotels. Uh, you know, and, and they, some of them, they know uh, veterans and some learning a lot through all the campaign and they all got a training, very well training to go and knocking doors. And we're knocking over 500,000 doors. And, uh, you know, we talk uh, with over 130,000 voters and have conversation with them. Uh, it was a, you know, what's a lot of challenge at this campaign because uh, one thing we say is uh, we, we need to be on the field, but uh, we have this pandemic and what we did is to follow everything, you know, uh, to protect the person they can see and the person they're talking. People wear masks, social distance, have their hand sanitizer, be prepared for everything to protect themselves. That's something we're learning. We're learning how to do the 
we feel uh, with all the protection, uh, you know, for uh, preventing anything and be, and be protecting. Uh, and we um, identified 42,000 people that was eligible voters, but they know they know both in 2016. And we talked to them, we're helping them, we make plans uh, for the both for Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. We uh, talk with over 80,000 people, you know, um, where they were supporting 90,000 people for Biden, Kamala Harris. Uh, and we have an intense, intense program with emails, uh, you know, text, social media. Uh, we're learning how to communicate uh, with this new world we have, uh, but I know only through technologies, you know, we was at the doors talking to people and, you know, for they telling us their concerns. And one of the things is, uh, the people they 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 know uh, the members they know uh you know what what are they going through right now because they live in that in their home so we can see how this pandemic going and what's because the lack of leadership of donald trump he never told us the truth he never said that this is a dead virus and how much we have to take care of ourselves and uh keeping that for him you know and that was a lot of damage because uh, we represent 60,000 members, the members that they was, everybody was working, <laughs> you know, in, in March uh, after they closed the casinos and they opened the casinos, uh, you know, because the pandemic is a slow process to people back to work. Uh, I think one thing we're learning and, and all these processes have to, have to work uh, in a safe way, but uh, we try to do the best we can to talk with more people this time and be sure people vote. That's one thing. And be sure every vote be counted. Uh, that's another thing we have to we have to do at this time completely different than in other elections. You know, um we have to really, really sure they respect everybody. You know, you can see the the president is still fighting and don't don't believe it. You know, uh and we we put in our all effort to have most people we could so they uh, talk to them and, and, and explaining to them how important it is this election. And this is completely different election than any other election. All the time we say, oh, this is a very important election. No, this election was the most important election for our country right now. The gains that you made in this election in terms of turning out voters, um, is that something that you're going to be able to build on in future election cycles. What do you do between elections, I guess, to make sure that people stay engaged? Well, uh, you know, uh, we have a lot of things uh, to rebuild in this country. And uh, right now, um, we have a lot of hope. Uh, we know the, uh, the president-elect uh, uh, believe uh, in to prevent uh, the, this coronavirus and, and really trust uh, doctors' advices and everything, and that's uh, we, we, the control of the coronavirus to get the right vaccine for people they can uh, uh, protect themselves, you know. And uh, one thing is that uh, we have a lot of things that we're asking right now 
out to the president elect and president Biden. Um, he he understands working people. He is uh, really um, a very pro union um, elected president. Uh, and we have Kamala Harris, which is came, you know, she's a uh, Asian African American woman. She understands uh, how the um, how the impact in the community. Uh, for the minority, and we have faith that you know they they will take care white, black, Asian, uh, uh, Latinx, uh, you know, um, native, new immigrants. We 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 know the next three, the the when they take them over, uh, is people who they understanding the issues of the families what they going through right now. They understand the pandemic. Uh, and we know uh, we need a COVID-19 relief right away, you know, uh, for, for helping people to go through this economic crisis and continue in, in, in mobilizing the economy. Uh, and we need to have uh, protection for people they have their health care and how they can uh, have the COVID pay, you know, for not losing millions and millions of people that own health care. Uh, and we had to have a a support uh, to the working people, you know, when they um they they you know they want to have a union, respect their voices, uh, and and really don't let only the companies uh, take all all the benefits and profits. You know, we have we have a, a an elected president and an elected vice president, where we're going to be sure the working people have a voice. Uh, you know, and right now we have the session casinos campaign. People, they've been winning elections and winning elections, and the company continually uh, fighting, 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 fighting. All that unfairness had to be looking and be fair with the working people. I think uh, uh, that's the engagement to maintaining everybody. Uh, they will see, they have a hope right now. You know, we will bring to the doors is uh, the hope to have a big change, you know, have this president who is uh, a president who divides the country, anti-immigrants, anti-union, and, and completely um, don't take the responsibility for the pandemic. I think that that will uh, maintaining engaged people so when they see the the move, it's not going to be like uh, from one day to the next day. If they, they take in the country where the country right now is, is a million unemployment and a pandemic. But uh, we know if they do the right thing and we're all working together, uh, you know, it uh, doesn't matter for who people move, but that we're still together as a country, we can move forward. What are you going to be looking for in the next relief package that is specific to to help your members? And what do you think both the companies and and Congress should be doing right now to address this uh, this whole industry that's just been completely devastated by the crisis? So I think uh, the most important part is have a COVID relief, you know, uh, to helping the the families to go through. And this economic um, crisis and extended the unemployment right now, uh, you know, to give it time uh, 
to the the companies little by little back uh, and, and protect their jobs. I think that people have to protect their jobs, you know, because it's not fair uh, because when you have a pandemic, you've been working in one place for 20 or years, and now because you have the pandemic, you're still in home, and then the company is not going to take you back. Uh, that's one thing uh, we want to protect union or union workers to return and the right to return to back to their jobs when the, the job's going to be for them. You know, if no, it's not going to be in the next year, probably a lot of people, you know, going to be little by little, um, that return. But when you keep your job and you maintain your job, uh, you know, you're going to go to the toughest travel, but at the end, you have the hope to go back to your place where you was working before. Protecting people with the code that pay right now to know, have millions and millions of people losing their insurance, I think is a very important thing for the government, you know, look at uh, all these families right now. We need to work together as a country and we need to help each other and we have to figure out how we're going through this pandemic together. Well, we have to be sure every vote be counted uh, this country, um, democracy had to be equal for white and black and Latinos and native and new immigrants. Uh, that democracy is so important to maintaining in this country. And we have to be sure that that democracy, democracy be respected here. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Gioconda Argulo Klein, Secretary Treasurer of Unite Here. And now it is time for everybody's favorite segment Arg, I wish I'd written that. The election is over, and with the victory of Joe Biden, some of us are worried that there'll be a desire to just go back to normal. The Biden campaign spent a lot of time telegraphing a nothing big will change message in a time of chaos, and it's true that that has a certain appeal. I, for one, want to go to sleep for about a month. But Kianga Yamada-Taylor at The New Yorker reminds us that voting Trump out is not enough. Her piece is a strong call reminding us that, quote, we cannot perpetuate the election year fiction that the deep and bewildering problems facing millions of people in this country will simply end with the Trump administration, end quote. Because of course it is a fiction. Trump, as we have talked about so many times on this show, was and is a symptom, not the cause of American white supremacy and capitalism. And those structures will require much more long, slow hacking away. So yes, yes, I am talking about Philly again, but Kianga, like me, lives here, and her words are worth reading on this city as well as everything else. She writes, quote, Today in Philadelphia, where I live, there is not a single aspect of life that the pandemic has not upended. From work and school to housing and healthcare, pulling poor and working class African Americans in particular deeper into debt and despair. The uncertainty of the moment, let alone the future, feeds fear, frustration, hopelessness, and dread. 
She continues, quote, when last month police killed a 27-year-old black man named Walter Wallace Jr. in the streets of West Philadelphia, while he was in the midst of a mental health crisis, the frustration of many black Philadelphians spilled into the streets, just as it did last summer. And now, like then, Pennsylvania's governor mobilized the National Guard to corral demonstrators to restore one kind of order while leaving palpable social disorder intact. Trump stumbled on some truth when he said, bad things happen in Philadelphia, end quote. She reminds us that the Democrats are in part responsible for upholding the system we live under. Quote, it is not a Trumpian slur to observe that many of the cities where Black suffering takes place are also governed by proud members of the Democratic Party. It illuminates the depth of the bipartisan failure to address the tangled roots of racism, poverty, and inequality. It can also help us understand why Trump captured more votes from Black men and women in this year's election than he did in 2016. End quote. And yet, of course, there is some good news. The voters might be ready for some bigger change than the parties that purport to represent them. Quote, this summer, polls found historic shifts in attitudes regarding the acknowledgement of racism in our society. More recent polling has also found widespread desire for big government spending on public programs. In a New York Times Siena College poll released in October, 72% of respondents support a $2 trillion stimulus, far more than the $500 billion plan that Republicans half-heartedly support. Another 67% of people support a government-backed public option in healthcare. 66% support Biden's $2 trillion plan to combat climate change. Around 85% of the public believes that making safe, decent, affordable housing available to all should be a top national priority. In this election, six states and Washington, D.C. passed drug policy reforms, and Florida, which voted for Trump, became the eighth state to vote for a $15 an hour minimum wage, end quote. So what do we do with all of this information? Taylor reminds us that the protests that made all this possible weren't just about Trump, and they will need to be redoubled. But beyond that, it is the radical encampments of the unhoused that she points to here in Philadelphia that, quote, have provided tangible tactical options in the ongoing struggle to secure safe, sound, and decent housing for the poor and working class in Philadelphia and beyond, end quote. It is ultimately true, as Taylor writes, that, quote, the limits of electoral politics are what have brought us to this moment. The real levers to hold liberal leadership accountable can't exist within the party, but must exist outside of it or the left needs its own party reflecting its actual politics and priorities. She writes, the need in this country dwarfs the best of what Biden has put on the table for changing our current condition. But the demonstrations of the summer, the ongoing campaigns for mutual aid, and the growing movement against evictions are demonstrable proof that power is not only generated in mainstream politics, but can be garnered through collective organizing and acts of solidarity. They also foretell a future in which the country does not return to a long-forgotten normal, but is animated by protests, strikes, occupations, and the ongoing struggle for food, medicine, care, housing, justice, and democracy. End quote. 
I couldn't possibly have said it better myself. My pick for ARG is COVID took my grandfather, but it wasn't what killed him by Sarah Jones in New York Magazine. The piece starts off with the moment Sarah Jones's grandfather passes away, but it then unspools into a poignant thread tracing our family's history through three generations of struggle for dignity, economic security, a sense of belonging, and three generations of disappointments at every turn. Jones and her family hail from a growing tribe of Americans, not the downtrodden of Appalachia, though there is some of that, nor the ranks of disaffected millennials, though there is also some of that. They belong to the aspirational class, those who never quite make it past the outermost edge of the precariat, but nonetheless keep hoping. And her grandfather's story shows how a life of aspiration can quickly spiral into a life that is dismissed as somehow unworthy. She writes, quote, sick, in and out of hospitals, and possessed of limited means, my grandfather belonged to a sacrificial category of person in America. This category has always existed, but the pandemic has exposed it and expanded its borders. It has become so difficult to pretend that American free market capitalism is anything but brutal that conservatives have largely given up trying. Barely a month into the pandemic, Dan Patrick, the Republican lieutenant governor of Texas, suggested that elderly Americans should be willing to take a chance on their own survival to keep the economy open for their children and grandchildren. Quote, those of us who are 70 plus will take care of ourselves, he said. The Catholic writer R.R. R. Reno called wearing masks cowardice and warned of, quote, a demonic side to the sentimentalism of saving lives at any cost, unquote. The link between all this talk of sacrifice and religion is not coincidental. There's a deep and abiding faith in free markets and its ability to uplift people within a generation. Doing better than your parents did was, for much of the 20th century, an article of faith for working class families. But these days, it's increasingly become simply a myth, which is revealed when Jones's grandfather is treated by the nursing care system as if he were already a lost cause, unworthy of hope. In describing her grandfather's facility, which faced a massive COVID-19 outbreak in his final days, she writes, quote, I don't believe anyone benefits from mass death and suffering, or that the elderly and infirm should be made to feel like detritus while they are still alive, as my grandfather was. Toward the end of his life, his spirits began to flag. He wanted to go home, but he was never able to spend more than a week or two in his own bed. Quote, they're treating him like he's already in a body bag, unquote, my brother complained when the insurance company refused to cover a longer rehab stay. Soon enough, it was true, unquote. Jones ends her grandfather's harrowing story with a few disturbing snapshots of the president's creepily karmic moment when the commander-in-chief finally admitted that he himself had gotten infected and then proceeded to expose many of those around him. Jones recalls initially feeling a twinge of schadenfreude upon hearing the news, but she concludes there's little point in hoping that the virus would somehow teach this man a lesson or chasten him to be more empathetic to the quarter million plus people who have already died in his watch. Beyond feigning solemnity when asking for their votes, Trump really didn't seem all that bothered by the mass death that he was presiding over, even while he himself was recovering from the virus. No, of course, Trump was going to turn his bout with the deadly disease into a PR stunt to prove how invincible he is, complete with dramatic helicopter scene and boasts about his awesome immunity. Jones writes, quote, Trump's recovery was a testament to the power of money to keep someone going well after their personal habits would have killed other poorer men. Presidents have always enjoyed their luxuries, and Trump, rich since birth, boasted more advantages than most. 
When he got sick, the disparities in how he was treated compared with my grandfather felt like personal insults. A helicopter ferried Trump to the hospital. He had the best doctors. He stayed in a special suite with a real view. He even got to go for a joyride in an armored SUV to wave to his supporters. Back in Virginia, my mother fumed and sent me angry messages about the president. She had shingles, and the anger and the stress so agitated her symptoms that a doctor told her to stop working. She had already lost thousands of dollars in income, a consequence of the months of caregiving she had provided my grandfather, and more recently, of bereavement. I scratched at my legs until the skin broke and scabbed over. Then I scratched them again. Trump got better. My family hasn't. And neither have millions of others. Unquote. So it turns out COVID was not the great equalizer, as some had suggested it might be in the beginning. It wasn't the equalizer for her grandfather, nor for Trump, nor for any of the hundreds of thousands of people who find themselves on the wrong side of this country's pernicious divides of race, age, and health. The coronavirus is, in a sense, a great unequalizer, given the disproportionality in its impact. Blacks die at a higher rate than whites. The old die at much higher rates than the young. Don't we seem to accept this? COVID surfaces what we knew all along, aggravating the underlying wounds of social inequality that have festered for generations. COVID-19 should have humbled us, forced us to grapple with the mortality that we all share. Instead, though, the American healthcare system and the political system that buttresses it conspire to keep us living in increasingly disparate realities. And you can see, perhaps, why so many poor Americans never stop striving to achieve what they perceive as middle-class security. Because ascending to that world isn't just about material contentment. It's about the psychological contentment of complacency, of delusion, of living in the myth that everyone gets what they deserve as long as they take, quote, personal responsibility. This is how the dream and this grand experiment of free market capitalism perpetuates itself. It's fueled by an unshakable faith in individual freedom above all else, mixed with willful ignorance that draws us away from class consciousness and toward chauvinism. Ignorance won't protect you from death, of course, but sometimes it's powerful enough to protect you at least temporarily, from the consequences of your own actions, no matter how many other nameless, faceless others get hurt along the way. And that's it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks again to Colin and Natasha for making us sound good. And remember to visit our Patreon page to become a monthly sustaining member and to get a cool free prize in exchange for your monthly donation. You can also support us at Descent Magazine directly by subscribing or providing a monthly sustaining donation there. And we want to hear from you. We want to hear from you if you want to rant or rave about the election. We want to hear about your experience if you are one of the many union members who fanned out across the country to knock on doors and encourage people to go out and vote. And we want to hear from you if you want to talk about your hopes and your fears for the next four years and beyond. Or maybe you're like us and you're just sick of the election. You can also get in touch to gripe about your job and your worries about how you're going to make rent next month. You can find us on Twitter at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>